Let us pray. Almighty and glorious and gracious God, O sovereign ruler over all, our Redeemer, we thank you for all your wonderful deeds because of all you have done for us. We will be glad and rejoice in you. You have set your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, upon your throne, and he rules over all, the incarnate God-man, the Word made flesh, your eternally begotten Son, sent into the world in the fullness of time, the one who suffered and died for us, who rose on the third day, who now reigns over all. We look to him. We trust in him. We hope in him. We thank you for his epiphany to the nations that His light shines into the world for all who have eyes to see. So Lord, today open our eyes that we might behold His glory in great and new ways. Open the eyes of the nations that they may see His glory and come into His kingdom. O God, You are a God of justice and faithfulness, a God of love and mercy. Your wisdom is displayed in all the wonders of creation that surround us. But especially, we see your wisdom. Indeed, we see the glory and the fullness of who you are in our redemption. As you have saved us from death and sin through the death of your sinless Son on the cross and his resurrection on the third day. And so, Lord, we cry out, be with us today. Meet with us this day. Renew your covenant with us this day. Give us your gifts The gifts of the sanctuary, the gifts of the most holy place, life, glory, wisdom. Strengthen us in faith that we might go out from here serving as faithful priests and kings and prophets, advancing your kingdom in the world. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm also going to read for us this morning from the prophet Haggai, chapter 1, the first 11 verses. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoazadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. 
And there ends our reading. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us through your word, your holy and inspired and infallible scripture. Father, may you use your word as a sharp double-edged sword, the sword of the spirit, to cut us, to renew us, to transform us more and more into the image of Christ Jesus, that we might live more and more faithfully, that we might more and more be the kind of people you call us to be, the kind of community you call us to be in your word, that we might carry out the mission that you have given to us in faithfulness and effectiveness to the nations. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Everybody wants to change the world. No one is satisfied with the status quo. This is true of people who identify as liberal. It's true of people who identify as conservative. And it's true of everybody in between. Uh, It's certainly true of us as Christians. In fact, we as Christians have a very special interest in changing the world. You could say we are literally on a mission from God to change the world. God has given us a mission to reshape the world, to disciple the nations. We read the Great Commission this morning. That's what it's all about, Matthew 28. The Great Commission is not just about evangelizing individuals so they are converted to faith in Jesus. That's certainly crucial and a key part of it. But it's more than that. It is about discipling the nations. It is about teaching them everything Christ has commanded, which means not just the red letter parts of your Bible, but the whole thing from Genesis to Revelation because it's all ultimately His Word. It's a word from Christ or about Christ. It means we are commanded to not only bring individuals to faith, but to transform and rebuild institutions so that all of life and culture is brought under Christ's rule. So that the nations as nations are Christ's disciples. That's our commission. Now Christians in the past have had quite a bit of success in this mission. And indeed we today are the beneficiaries of their work. The civilization, or at least what's left of it, uh, that we enjoy today is largely the product of Christians who are seeking to transform the world. To disciple the nations. But see, that's just the problem. Christians today, at least in America, do not seem very successful at discipling our nation. We're not very effective in transforming our culture. Our numbers are still great, but our influence seems very small. Uh, If anything, it seems we regularly lose ground. And no matter how hard we try to change laws or change different aspects of the culture, we fail. It falls flat. The prophet Haggai tells us why. He tells us why the American church is ineffective. He tells the American church what we're doing wrong and how to fix it. See, Haggai describes a similar time in Judah's history when they were working hard to build a culture. They wanted to create a God-honoring civilization that would be good for all. But they were just spinning their wheels. They were not getting any traction. They couldn't get anywhere in this project. And in the beginning of this book, the prophet comes and explains to them why their efforts are in vain. 
So there's a lot we can learn here. If you want to see America discipled, if you want America to become a disciple of Christ, a nation that is discipled, a transformed nation, then listen up because Haggai's message is for you. Now, of course, Haggai's not writing to Americans. He's writing to Old Covenant Jews, to the people of God. Uh, He's writing in the late 500s B.C. Uh, In fact, he dates his first prophecy for us. So if we uh, trust the best chronological data, uh, we know exactly when this took place. Haggai's first prophecy comes on August 29th, 520 B.C. Uh, In fact, Haggai delivered all of his prophecies in about a 15-week period from what we would call late August uh, to mid-December in 520 B.C. Here's the situation. The Jews had been exiled uh, for generations, generations earlier. Uh, They had been taken out of their homeland by pagan invaders. Uh, Their nation, their city, and their temple had all been destroyed. Their culture had been overrun. They had been enslaved. And it was all punishment for their sins. The prophets had warned them of this, and then it came to pass as a judgment for their idolatry and their unfaithfulness. But in the midst of prophesying this doom for the nation of Israel and the people of Judah, God had also spoken through the prophets promises of restoration. And now by the grace of God, they have been returned to their land. The restoration is going into effect. And when they first returned to their land, they got to work rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. They knew that had to be their first priority. And so they laid the foundations for a rebuilt temple. You can read about this at the beginning of the book of Ezra. But then they started to face opposition in this work. Political and cultural pushback against their temple building. And so they turned away from building God's house in order to build their own houses. You can read about the opposition they faced in Ezra chapter 4, opposition from the Samaritans and the emperor, perhaps Satan himself behind it, not wanting the temple of the Lord to be reconstructed and worship to be resumed in all its glory. And so because of this difficulty in rebuilding the Lord's house, they focused on other things. They focused on building up commerce and their businesses. They focused on their farms and their homes. They focused their energies, you could say, on building culture. They focused on culture rather than cult. And I'm using cult there in the sense of just worship, what would take place at the temple. Culture rather than cult became their priority. Now, that had happened about 16 to 18 years prior to Haggai's prophecy here. So they turned away from temple building, from cult, and focused on culture. And what happened? What was the result of these 16 intervening years of focusing on their culture? Well, Haggai's going to explain to them. Look at the prophecy itself. All their best efforts have failed. Verse 2, we find what the people have been saying. The people say, the time has not come, the time to build the Lord's house. They know they ought to build the Lord's house, but they keep putting off the hard work of rebuilding the Lord's temple. That's where most of the resistance was. That's where they faced the greatest obstacles. And that's why they had quit. And it's also why they're reluctant to start back at it because it's going to be difficult. There will be resistance. Verse 3 and 4, the prophet says, You are dwelling in paneled houses 
while the temple is in ruins. That is to say, your houses are nice and comfortable. And there was nothing wrong with that in itself. Your houses are finished, Haggai is saying. The paneling, the trim work, even the last little bits to go in, all that's been put up. But what's the problem? God's house lies in ruins. God's house is in rubble. And so the prophet goes on to explain to the people the result of their misplaced priorities. They sow much, but bring in little. That is to say, their farms are not very productive or fruitful. The labor they put in and the result they get out don't match. They're working way too hard to get this little result. And in fact, later in the section of the chapter we read, we find out why. It's because God is withholding the dew that would water the crops and make the crops fruitful. A drought has fallen on the land. He says, you eat but don't have enough. So they're eating. It's not like they're starving. But when they push back from the table, they're not satisfied. Something is missing. You drink, but you don't enjoy your drink. They have built vineyards. They've rebuilt their culture in this way. There are vineyards. But the wine's not all that great. They can't really enjoy it. He says you clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. Your closets are full. The fashion industry is up and running. Uh, the, the, the clothes are there. But your clothes are not doing what they're supposed to do. They're not keeping you warm. You earn wages, but your money goes into a pierced bag. A bag with holes. There is commerce. There is business. Business has gotten back up and running in Jerusalem. But what's happening... By every indicator, the economy should be strong, but it's not. There's money, but it seems there's money is losing value. There are investments, but it seems their investments are not paying off. There's work, but it's not as profitable as would be expected. But what's the problem? Why are all these cultural efforts not paying off the way they should? Well, Haggai has told them. Behind their cultural malaise is God Himself. He's not outright judging His people as He did in the exile, but He is certainly withholding the fullness of His blessing. All the things the prophets promised, the the glorious things that would come to pass when the nation was restored, they're not happening. Why? Because the temple lies in ruins. What's holding them back from cultural renewal and transformation? Why aren't they fulfilled and prosperous and effective? Israel was always supposed to be the model culture, the model nation. And yet the Lord's not empowering them to do it. It's because they have neglected the center. They have neglected the temple. And so the Lord is frustrating their culture-building culture-transforming efforts. They came back from exile zealous to rebuild a God-glorifying civilization. That's what they wanted. But their efforts are in vain. Verse 7, the Lord says, Consider your ways. That is to say, repent. Consider what you're doing. Think about it. Give it some thought and you'll figure out what you're doing wrong. Verse 8, the Lord tells them flat out, Go up into the mountains and get some wood. Get the kind of wood you need to rebuild the temple. Get to work rebuilding the Lord's house in Jerusalem. Verse 9, the Lord says, you looked for much. That is, you expected to prosper. You expected to 
take dominion here. You expected to rule over the land. You expected to build a great civilization. You were going to make Judah great again. But it's not happening. The Lord says you looked for much, but it's come to little. The Lord says, whatever you brought to my house, I blew away. The word there for bringing what they brought to the Lord's house, that's the word that is used for bringing offerings to the altar. So they're going to worship. Worship is still happening. There is a functioning altar. But when they bring their offerings, instead of the smoke arising as a sweet-smelling aroma to God, ascending up to His throne, He just blows it away. It never makes it up to His throne because He blows it away. Instead of receiving their sacrifices, He rejects them. And if he's doing this, it must be because they are being liturgically careless. Their worship is sloppy. It's not according to to form. They're not worshiping according to the pattern God gave them. And so here we learn, not only is the temple in a state of disrepair, but the liturgy has been corrupted. And the result is they are laboring diligently in all these other areas of life, but they have little to show for it. They seek security, but don't find it. They want dominion over their land, but it keeps slipping through their fingers. They think, oh, let's get our farms going. Let's build up our houses, and then we'll get to the temple later. Maybe when our enemies will leave us alone, then we'll get back to building the temple. When we've got more money, perhaps, then we'll get to work on the temple rebuilding project. We want to rebuild the temple. That's what the people are saying. But we've really got to focus on other things right now. They say we need security, so we'll rebuild our homes first. We need prosperity, so we'll build our businesses and our farms first. They say we need peace, so we'll build an army first. And you can see what God thinks of their priorities. He's not pleased. Now what lessons does Haggai the prophet have for us today about 2,500 years later. What applications can this prophecy from 520 B.C. have for 2019 A.D.? Obviously, the point is not to go build a temple in Jerusalem. That's not the project God has given to us. But we do have a temple. And the New Testament Scriptures show us again and again, our temple is the church. We are the temple. It's not the church building. It's the church's people. It's her members. Ephesians 2 says, you are a temple. Paul writes to the church and says, you are a temple built on the Lord Jesus Christ as the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being built up into a holy temple for the Lord. The church is a temple God is building for Himself to dwell in. A temple we're called to build that the Lord can dwell in. 1 Peter 2, Peter addresses the church and says, you are living stones being built up as a spiritual house, a spirit-made house, a spirit-filled house, a holy priesthood, he says, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The people are the temple. They're the living stones that make up the temple. As the church grows, each new stone is put into the structure. Every new Christian is laid into that structure and is part of this house God is building. And of course, we're not only a house, there are also the priests who offer the sacrifices in the house. Peter brings all of that together and he says, you're the temple. 
You're the priesthood. You're the ones who offer sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices. You are God's house. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians as well. It's, it's all over the place. The book of Revelation shows us this. The church is God's temple. Now, think about this. Think about this. When Christians today think about how to transform our culture, when we think about how to have dominion over our land, as it were, that original cultural mandate to, to be fruitful and multiply and to rule over the earth and subdue it, to have dominion over the earth, what kind of things do Christians think of? When you get mailings from Christian organizations or when you see emails come into your inbox from Christian organizations, what are they focused on primarily? Many Christians turn to politics. When Christians say, we need to change the world, we need to fix the world, many Christians turn to politics. We need to get laws changed. We need to get the right candidates elected. Then everything will be fixed. Or... We go this route. We think if we could just influence Hollywood to make more family-friendly movies, you know, that would do it. Or we think, you know, if we could just tone down the liberalism on college campuses or maybe even have our own faithful Christian colleges. Now, the reality is all those things are very worthy goals. Getting laws changed, getting the right candidates elected, that's great. Changing the kind of Garbage that Hollywood produces to something better, that would be wonderful. Transforming campus life, college life, what happens on universities, or having faithful Christian universities. Those would all be great things. They're all worthy goals. They're things, indeed, we should pursue. They're good things. Just like the things the Jews were pursuing with their farms and their businesses and their homes. Haggai's message is not that they need to stop doing those things all together, but they need to understand they're not central. They are not the fountains from which rivers of cultural transformation flow. For that, we have to go further upstream to the very source. If we as the people of God want to disciple our nation, if we want to see other nations disciple, if we as the people of God want to shape society in a distinctively Christian way, if we want our nation to be a discipled nation, where do we start? What is the center of it? We have to start with the temple. Not with a Capitol building, not with a movie studio, not with a college campus, but with the temple. With the temple of the Lord, with the church. This is Haggai's message for us. We want all of society to be touched and transformed by the gospel. We want individuals and institutions to be reached by the grace of God. But in order to be effective in that mission on a grand scale, we have to start with the church. We have to start with the liturgy and with the other marks and ministries of the church. When Christians today talk about cultural transformation, they seem to talk about everything but the church. Right? They seem to talk about everything except Lord's Day worship. But covenant renewal liturgy on the Lord's Day is the first step in God's plan of renewing and reordering and recreating the world. Liturgy drives mission. Liturgy drives 
cultural transformation. Faithful worship unleashes the Spirit's work in the world to transform the nations. This is Haggai's message. As we, the church, are gathered together and lifted up into the heavenly presence of God, the heavenly most holy place, by the Spirit and through Jesus to meet God the Father, God is at work to renew and reorder our lives and to transform the world. That is the lesson of Haggai. That's why Haggai tells the people to get to work building the temple. Because until and unless faithful worship is restored, all their cultural activity will amount to very, very little. So Haggai is really giving the people of God a blueprint for cultural transformation. I would say a very different blueprint than what you find in most Christian circles today. It is a temple-centric blueprint. Or we could say an ecclesiocentric blueprint. Ecclesia being the Greek word for church. A church-centered blueprint. The first step in the blueprint is getting God's house in order. This is how I would sum up what you could call the Haggai principle or the Haggai option, if you prefer. If you're familiar with the Benedict option, maybe you want to think of it that way. This is the Haggai principle. Liturgical reformation drives cultural transformation. A lot of of times when we think about the liturgy, we think about how the liturgy brings personal transformation. And that's true. It's the center of your personal transformation as well. But Haggai is showing us something much bigger than that. It is at the heart of cultural transformation. Liturgical reformation drives cultural transformation. Or we could put it this way. Ecclesiastical reformation is the key to cultural transformation. That's the principle. That's what Haggai is showing us. If you build up God's house in the long run, you'll get culture thrown in. If we do things right as the house of God, that will bring transformation in the world around us. In fact, this is not just a pattern you see in Haggai. This is something you find all over the Bible. This is a huge biblical pattern. We see it again and again. To really understand it, you have to understand that when God set up the world, when God built the world in the beginning, He built the world with three zones or three regions. And you see this in Genesis 1-3. through I'm not going to go there and show you this in detail, but I'll just tell you what those three zones are there in Genesis. If you think about the geography, the sort of lay of the land, if you will, that Genesis gives to us, there are these three zones. We could call the garden the land, and the world. There's the Garden of Eden, the land of Eden, and the outer lying world. The Garden, of course, is the sanctuary where man relates to God and serves as a priest. The land is his home where men relate to one another and man serves as a king. The world, then, is the place where man works and carries out his mission and acts as a prophet. And just as in Genesis, the rivers flow through the Garden of Eden out to the land and world, so what happens in the sanctuary flows out to the family and the world. But the sanctuary is at the heart of it. Now one thing Genesis shows us is that if we corrupt these zones, we lose them. In Genesis 3, Adam sinned against God in the sanctuary, Garden of Eden, and so he lost it. He was exiled from the Garden. 
Then in Genesis 4, Cain sins against his brother in the land. And so he loses the land. He's sent into the wilderness of the world. And then in Genesis 6, all of humanity sins in the world as the sons of God, the godly people intermarry with the daughters of men, the ungodly people. And so they lose it all in the flood. They're wiped off the face of the world. You see this pattern play out again and again in Scripture. It happens That same threefold pattern happens with Israel in the book of Judges. Saul repeats it in his own life in 1 Samuel. He's got a threefold fall and loses these three zones. And finally, the whole kingdom is lost to him. It happens again and again. But here's what we also need to see. Anytime God wants to restore and rebuild a world, Anytime God wants to bring life and renewal and healing and dominion to a culture, the first thing he does is restore proper worship. Because everything's going to flow out of that. Renewal in the land and the world are downstream from the sanctuary. So, think about the life of Abraham. God promises a land to Abraham. God wants to give this land to Abraham's descendants, a place where they can build a godly civilization, a model for all the other nations. They're going to conquer the pagan culture that is there and set up what you could call a biblical culture, a Torah-shaped culture that, as Deuteronomy 4 says, will be a light to all the world. But before they can set up this godly civilization, this godly culture, what has to happen first? Abraham himself tracks through the land, conquering the land liturgically. I put that in scare quotes because it doesn't really look like much of a conquest. But if you follow Abraham as he travels through the land, he's never got a place to, to, to really settle down there. He's a sojourner. But what does he do? He goes through the land on a kind of proto-conquest, laying the groundwork for what his descendants will do for their later cultural and political and military conquests. What does Abraham do? Everywhere he goes in the land, he sets up wells and he builds altars. This digging of wells and this building of altars. He's, what's he doing? He's obviously setting up places of worship all throughout the land. And in fact, if you look, those very spots become key places a few generations later where Joshua fights and wins battles against the Canaanites. Why does Joshua win culturally and politically? Because Abraham had already laid the groundwork through faithful worship. The land had to be conquered liturgically before it could be conquered politically. It had to be conquered in prayer and praise first before that cultural transformation could come. God is showing through Abraham, liturgy is the tip of the spear. Liturgy is the cutting edge of the kingdom, the alpha of the kingdom, the the nursery of the kingdom. It's where Christian culture, where Christian civilization begins. It's the same in the Exodus. Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go. God is speaking to Pharaoh through Moses. Let my people go. But why? What are the people going to do? They've been Pharaoh's slaves. What are they going to do when the Lord frees them? What are they going to do when they're set free from Egypt? What's going to come first? Will they leave Egypt to first go set up a theocracy, a kind of political kingdom? Will they leave Egypt and go build a a godly college or a godly hospital? No, those things would come eventually. They're good things and they should be pursued. 
But Moses tells Pharaoh what they're going to do, what their first priority is going to be when they are set free. In Exodus chapter 10, he tells Pharaoh what they will do first. He says, let us go. Let us go with our young and our old, our sons and our daughters, our flocks and our herds, for we must hold a religious festival. A worship service, a worship assembly, a worship feast is really what the word describes. We must hold a worship feast to the Lord. The Exodus leads directly to worship. They're set free for this purpose, first and foremost, to worship before the Lord, to have a worship feast to the Lord. Yes, they'll eventually build a theocracy. They'll do the political thing. They're going to build a faithful culture eventually. But the first thing they must do is worship. Liturgy will lay the foundation. And when the Exodus happens, this is exactly what they do. They go to meet with the Lord at Sinai and they worship Him in reverent fear there. And then they build the tabernacle, a kind of portable Sinai they can take with them. They build the tabernacle as the Lord's house. And then as they march through the wilderness... The Torah is very clear about this. The tabernacle is positioned at the center of all the people. The people are arrayed around God's throne, God's altar. They're arrayed around the tabernacle. The tabernacle's right at the center. You know, if you go to uh, European cities and villages, cities that were built up during the uh, Christian medieval era, at the center of every city in Europe, you would have a church right at the center of the city. And then you would have a steeple on that church that would be the tallest building in the city. And in that steeple would be a church bell that would ring out loud and clear every Lord's Day, every Sunday, to publicly summon the whole town, the whole city, to come and worship the Lord. That kind of geographic ecclesiocentrism, that kind of church-centeredness, that's the embodiment of this truth. For God's people, the church at the center. I'll give you another example of this. First Kings 22 and 23. When the godly king Josiah could see that Judah was a complete mess and needed reformation in every way, how did he go about fixing it? Judah was a complete disaster. So what does the king do? He, all of his reforms, virtually all of his reforms, are liturgical reforms. They are directed towards renewing the sanctuary and the liturgy. And so he restores the temple that had fallen into disrepair. He builds it back up again. He tears down the idolatrous altars in the high places. He reinstitutes the Passover. The Passover had, had, had fallen away. They weren't practicing the Passover. They weren't celebrating the Passover. He restores it. Josiah faced major military and political threats to his kingdom. It might have seemed the wise thing to do, what a wise king would do, would be to focus all his energy elsewhere on dealing with those threats. But no, Josiah knows the divinely ordained order of cultural renewal must start with the temple. It must start with worship. We read Ezekiel 47 this morning in Ezekiel's temple vision. What happens? Ezekiel has this vision of a, of a glorious rebuilt temple and a river of living water flows out of this temple. The river of living water doesn't flow out of the king's palace. The river of living water doesn't flow out of the capitol building. 
The river of living water flows out of the temple. And that brings renewal. That brings transformation to the land and then to the world. It restores everything. Even in John's Gospel, I think we get a little picture of this. The way John records the ministry of Jesus as Jesus begins his ministry according to John. Where does he go? At the very beginning, he goes to the temple and he cleanses it. That comes first. Temple cleansing first. John chapter 2. Then in John chapter 3, he goes into the land to explain who he is to Nicodemus. And then in John chapter 4, he goes into the world to meet with the Samaritan woman and do his mission there. But you see the pattern before restoring this relationship with his brother Nicodemus and before carrying out his mission to the Samaritans, to Samaritan culture, what's the first thing he does? He cleanses the temple. The ministry of Jesus is right in line with Haggai's pattern. Indeed, I pointed out that Haggai gives us a very precise date for his prophecy in their way of keeping days. It was the first day of the sixth month Leviticus 23 tells us this would have been a day for all of Israel or all of Judah to gather together in a holy assembly to worship the Lord. Haggai delivers this prophecy in the context of a worship service. Numbers 28 tells us this was a day of sacrificial worship, a special day of sacrifice, the first day of the sixth month. Haggai gathers the people in the broken down temple and basically says to them, see, until you restore the Lord's house. Your culture will be broken down. Your culture is going to lie in ruins until you restore the temple to its glory. It is easy to think that worship and indeed the church as an institution is irrelevant to what happens in the world. What does the church have to do with culture? What does the church have to do with current events? What does the church have to do with anything going on in the world today? But nothing could be further from the truth. If the church in America is not a cultural force to be reckoned with, if the church in America is not having a cultural and political impact, or at least not the kind of cultural and political impact that we should, you know why we're not having the cultural and political impact that we should have? It's because we're focused on having a cultural and political impact. And we have neglected the worship of the Lord. The Lord's house is in disrepair. Our cultural pursuits are good. We're not saying we should stop doing them. Haggai doesn't say that. But we've got to get the order straight. And in our day, I think it's safe to say the Lord's house is in ruins all over our land. The liturgy has been corrupted. And so the Lord blows away our sacrifices instead of receiving them. The teaching of the Word has been eclipsed by all kinds of different entertainments. The Lord's Supper, our new covenant Passover meal, has been lost, at least for most churches on most Sundays. Church discipline has been lost. We don't bring order to our own community, so how can we expect there to be order in the world? And the church's unity has been lost. How can we expect America to be united when the church is fragmented? We can keep trying to change the culture the way the pagans try to change culture. That is directly or by force or by majority vote or by lobbying or by military power or by proposing new laws and new candidates. But none of these things will actually work. 
We can keep trying to make America great again, but we're not going to get very far so long as the Lord's house is in disrepair. The first thing we must do is make the church great again. If Christians are really serious about making our nation great again, about making our nation good, about making our nation godly, this is where it starts. Because this is where it starts for every nation. In in every nation, we want to see this kind of transformation come. We want to see the nation's disciples. But it can't happen apart from faithful churches worshiping the Lord faithfully. Scripture is clear. Judgment begins with the house of God. But reformation begins with the house of God as well. Transformation begins with the house of God as well. And so what does it mean, and I'm speaking here corporately, broadly, about the whole church in our land. What do we have to do? We have to get serious about worship about prayer, about preaching, about the Psalms, about the Scriptures, about tithing, about excommunicating the unfaithful, about having qualified officers, officers, leaders in the church who meet the biblical qualifications. We've got to get serious about caring for the poor and the sick and the lonely in Christ's name. The diaconal mission of the church. The first task of the church is always to be the church. See, Haggai lets us in on a little secret here. The secret of cultural transformation. But the reality is it's not supposed to be a secret. We're supposed to know this. Sadly, today, for all too much of the church, it is a secret. It's not a secret because it's not clear in Scripture. It's a secret because we don't know our Scriptures. If we don't make worship central, we are basically political atheists, thinking we are the ones who can change the world in our own strength, in our own power, in our own wisdom. Actually making worship central to cultural transformation is really just a way of confessing our own impotence. It's a way of confessing that the Lord alone can give us the nations as discipled kingdoms. And so ask, how are you building up God's house? How are you doing your part as a member of the body of Christ and a living stone in the temple? How are you contributing to the construction of God's house so He might take pleasure in it and be glorified? That's what God says He'll do when the house is built up. And for God to be glorified, you know what that means? That's a public thing. That is a public display of who God is. If that's what you want, you want to see God's fame spread throughout all the nations, the first thing that has to happen is the house of the Lord has to be built up. Haggai is saying to every member of of Judah, he's saying to us as every member of the church, let's all do our part. Let's seek to be faithful churchmen. Let's worship God faithfully. Let's build up His house. Let's pray and feast and love and sing. Let's listen attentively to and study deeply God's Word. Let's practice faithfulness. Let's seek unity with our fellow brothers and sisters. And then watch what the Lord does when He takes pleasure in His house. How He spreads His glory abroad. We didn't read it this morning, but it's interesting. You go into uh, the rest of Haggai 
The next section is the people start to obey. And they get to work building the Lord's house. And so then the Lord speaks again through the prophet Haggai a little bit later. And he says, all right, because you've done this, this is what I will do. The Lord says, I will shake down the nations. And I will become the desire of the nations. I will bring all their treasures, all their silver and gold into my kingdom. You want to see our nation. You want to see all the nations one for Christ. This is where it starts. No, it's not the whole of it. Haggai's not saying they don't do anything but build the church. But what he is saying is building up the church is the center of it. The rivers of living water flow out from here. And we want to see those living waters bring transformation and healing to the rest of the world. We've got to build up God's house. Let's do our part in this together. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for Your promise to shake down the nations that they shall come to the desire of all nations who we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that through Him You would claim the nations as Your own. You would give the nations to Him as Your inheritance. And Father, we pray that in all of this You would use us as Your people. Our small local church here, along with all the other congregations that populate our land and indeed the world, would You make us faithful? Would You help us to build up Your house, a house that in so many ways today is in ruins. May we build up our churches that you may take pleasure in your own house and so glorify yourself in all the world. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.